With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hello, listeners. From home or on the road, catch a favorite story. You are listening to Catch the Story, the podcast where in each episode we bring you great stories told by dear storytellers. I'm your host, Lucia Matuonto, and it's time to catch the story. Our first guest is Susan Brown. Susan is a proud San Francisco native, recognized for her roles as a documentary filmmaker and podcaster. My name is Susan Elizabeth Brown. I was born August 5th, 1958. My parents' names are Willie Lewis Brown Jr. is my father and Blanche Vitero Brown is my mother. My father ran for assembly in 1963 and lost. And then he ran again in 1964 and won. And he has been in politics my entire life since 1964. He was Speaker of the California State Assembly for 15 years and after that Mayor of San Francisco for two terms, for eight years. And now he is a lawyer representing a lot of different corporations and he's also a lobbyist. My mother, Blanche Vitero Brown, is a choreographer, a dancer, and a dance teacher. And at 88, she still teaches dance every Friday at ODC in San Francisco, California. I lived in San Francisco until I was the age of 20. And then I moved to New York City when I got into NYU and I studied theater at New York University. Uh, I also worked for the CBS Morning News when the anchors were Bill Curtis and Diane Sawyer a long time ago. And I have had the opportunity to do many things in advertising and in theater, a little bit in theater. I directed theater and in film and then I worked in uh, politics and I worked for David Dinkins when he was the Manhattan Borough President uh, a long time ago. <laughs> it was my 
working for Mayor Dinkins was my second job outside of graduating from NYU. When I graduated from NYU, I worked as a page at CBS News, and then that job turned into a regular job as a um, broadcast associate for the CBS Morning News, and I did that for five years. I am dyslexic, and I was diagnosed with dyslexia when I was 13 years old, and I was diagnosed at a time that they didn't know what dyslexia was. Okay, where was I? So I was, uh, I moved to New York City in um, 1978 to go to um, undergraduate school at NYU. I got in because of my audition. The the dean of our school, Giannis Semenides, flew to San Francisco and auditioned us. And I auditioned for him and I got in. And I knew about NYU because I was part of ACT's, which is called American Conservatory Theater, ACT's Black Actors Workshop. A, a back when Denzel Washington and Danny Glover were in the regular ACT conservatory. I was in the Black Actors Workshop, and we did a play by Lorraine Hansberry called Raisin in the Sun, and I played Benita. And in playing Benita, I there was a scene where I had to react to Walter losing his mind, that Walter was her brother. I had to react to Walter losing his mind because of racism. And I pretended that that Walter was my dad and I was crying, but I was crying and allowing the tears to show. And Denzel Washington was running the lights and he put a thumbs up. So anyway, after being in the Black Eddie's workshop and going to, uh, going to College of Marin for my first year right out of school, I then applied to NYU because my professor at the Black Actors Workshop said, if you want to be in theater and you want to be serious about theater and you want to be in theater when it comes to working with kids, because I did at that time, you have to go to NYU. NYU has the best children's theater department. So I applied only to NYU. And by the grace of God, I got in. And my father said, if you get in, we, I will let you go. And I did get in and I went. And that became my love affair with New York City, which I still love today. I lived and worked in New York City for 10 years. And after 10 years, I decided I wanted to, to direct film. And in order to do that, I needed to apply to graduate school so I could learn how to be a film director. And I applied to USC and I got in. So at the age of 29, I flew back, moved back to Los Angeles or back to California, moved to LA and I went to USC for film school. And I did that for four years because film school actually is four years, not just two years for your master's. So I have a a BFA in theater from NYU and a MFA in film from USC. And I'm very proud of those two degrees. I'm dyslexic and I was diagnosed with dyslexia when I was 13. 
at a time when nobody knew what that was. I went to, I left public school and got into private school, uh, private alternative schools in San Francisco. And I did so because my parents knew that something was wrong and that I needed to be in a smaller, a more alternative classroom situation. So from the from fifth grade all the way through high school, I've always been in private alternative schools in San Francisco. And I'm very fortunate because I went to these alternative schools at a time when alternative schools were big and interesting and really experimental. Um, I was really lucky to be going to school at that time. So I got into NYU, then I went to USC, and then when USC was over, I really wanted to be back in New York City. So I went right back to New York City, even though I wanted to be in film, I wasn't willing to stay in Los Angeles to do that, and I didn't know how to do that in New York. So the closest I could come to being a filmmaker in New York was to work for advertising and work in the production department and be an assistant producer. So I got hired to be an assistant producer and I worked for Ogilvy and Mather for about five years. I worked for TBWA Shiat Day and I got transferred to Los Angeles and then I hated LA so I went right back again to New York for another 10 years and I worked for J. Walter Thompson for a few years. And then when I got really overwhelmed with working for advertise in advertising because it felt like it wasn't that so interesting after a while. I returned and worked for Mayor Dinkins um, in the permit office. And then when that ran its course and I wanted to figure out how to be back in film again, I got a job working for Spike Lee on his film called Clockers. Um, And then when that was over and Clockers was over, I wound up working for David Dinkins, not in the permit office, but hmm, I was doing some, like working directly for Barbara Fife in special events. Um, and then I decided I worked for J. Walter Thompson, and then it then I decided to return back to San Francisco in 2002. Oh, I worked for an internet company also, only for about a year. And then sort of things were sort of petering out and changing. And it was uh, 2000. And in 2001, the um, 9-11 happened and that shook me to my core. And I decided that I needed to go back and live in San Francisco and be with my family. And I wanted to do so before my parents got to be too old. I didn't want to be a person who was had to leave New York because something was wrong at home. I wanted to be already at home. So if anything could went wrong, I could, I could help manage that. And I also just knew that being in San Francisco might have given me the opportunity to really be a filmmaker. So in 2002, I packed my bags for good and left New York City and moved back home to San Francisco and worked for my father, which is what I do now. 
And on the side, I had a film company. And after a while, my father said, you work for me, you need to give back. So I worked for the African American Arts and Culture Center as a volunteer. And I taught little girls how to do theater and film. And it was really super fun. And Mayor Breed, who was London Breed then, she, or she still is London Breed, but she was not mayor. She was the executive director of the African American Arts and Culture Complex. Anyway, she, uh, I worked for her and I taught girls and I had a really fun time teaching girls. And Delroy Linda, who also lives in the Bay Area, said to me, you know, the boys need your help too. And I did, I, I was intimidated by the little boys, but not by the girls. So I worked with the girls and I only worked with enough girls who could actually fit in my car. And at the time I had a Volkswagen with convertible. And so however many girls could fit in my car, which was only three or four girls, that's how many little girls that I taught. And I wanted to have it be that way because the girls, I really wanted to take the girls on field trips. So the girls would, the girls would write something that they wanted us to film, to, to record. And then they would do the Foley themselves, all the sound effects themselves, and the narration. And that's what I had them do. It was a mixture of theater and film. And I had no idea at the time that really it was like, like a you know, dramatic podcast. But I didn't know that then. And so I've always worked for my father ever since I moved home to San Francisco. And that was almost 20-something years ago. I have a podcast called Beyond the Fog Radio, which is telling the story, oral history of the San Francisco Bay Area. I'm a photographer, and I still call myself a filmmaker because I've directed eight documentary films on my family, on my father, on his best friend, Wilkes Bashford, on what it's like to be dyslexic. And now I'm finishing up a film. And I'm still running around and doing life as if I was 35 and not 65. So that's Susan Elizabeth Brown in a nutshell, and I hope that you enjoy this story. Thanks. Bye. Susan's commitment to helping others is intricately woven into her passion for storytelling, whether through documentary photography or her engaging oral history podcast, Beyond the Fog Radio. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Lucky Land Casino. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Next on our lineup is Mike Nelson. 
a retired physician, Vietnam veteran, and accomplished author. It was the end of another busy day at the clinic. The patient flow had been steady and well managed by the staff. When I had ventured out to the front desk, the waiting room was filled with friendly conversation and laughter. My staff was incredibly efficient at balancing the many trying duties of patient management. As I often reminded myself that for every one person I dealt with, my staff had to deal with them twice. Once when they checked in and again on the way out and they made their follow-up appointments. On busy days, when we were blessed with a full schedule and several walk-in patients, the phone seemed to ring non-stop, and yet the ladies never seemed flustered or communicated anything but a serene disposition to the patients, or so it seemed to me. There was very little that ever threw them, but there was one thing that did it every time. Jack Pinter, or as we knew him, Jack Pine. Over the years, Jack and I had developed something that could not be classified as a relationship, but was more of an understanding of each other. Jack never failed to show his gratitude for his care, not just by squaring his office fees, but in other more colloquial ways as well. Every Christmas season, Jack would barge his way into the office, bundled against the winter with his hat pulled down to his eyebrows and these great big leather chopper mittens and thump a half-gallon growler jug of the latest rendering from his still on the counter, then turn and walk back across the waiting room. With his hand on the doorknob, he would turn and announce, that's for the dock. And with that, he'd be gone. At other times, Jack Pine would show up quietly and land a large butcher-wrapped bundle on the counter. The bundle would prove to contain fresh venison, steaks, ribs, roasts. They would arrive unfrozen and obviously fresh, invariably out of season. I once asked Jack Pine in a roundabout way, if I could, if he shot the deer out of season and his reply had been, well, gee, Doc, everybody knows venison tastes best in any month with a R in it, and that includes Argust. I had left the subject alone after that. The staff had specific instructions for whenever Jack Pine showed up to be seen to the patient, for which he never called ahead. Indeed, I don't even think he had a telephone. In that event, he was taken back to a treatment room immediately. Jack Pine had a negative effect on the disposition of other people in the waiting room, often elevating their blood pressures and heart rates and producing sweaty palms. Once he took his handgun off and checked it at the front counter and he was in a room, the staff would come and notify me no matter how busy I was. Seeing Jack Pine as soon as possible was in all of our best interests. His fits of temper were legend throughout the county and he was known to make a scene with as little as what he perceived as a negative glance. Although I had never witnessed one of these events, the very thought of an angry Jack Pine Pinner carrying a handgun on his hip was plenty enough to send chills up and down my spine. It was one such day when a very pale-faced Vicky from the front desk knocked on the door to the room that I was presently working in. Opening in a crack, in a voice barely above a whisper, she announced, Jack Pinner is in room three. 
and then she was gone, only to return in a tick, and Jerry is with him. I quickly wrapped up what I was doing and headed for room three. Jack Pine in the office was one thing, but if his wife Jerry was with him, it could only mean it was serious. Upon entering the room, I gave a cheerful greeting and was met with a sullen Jack Pine and an obviously angry Jerry Pinter. Seated next to each other beside the small desk, they looked like the epitome of Jack Spratt and his wife who could eat no lean. Jack Pine never raised his eyes from my shoes and Jerry looked like she was ready to chew glass, which if she had, I would not have been surprised in the least. Jack couldn't have tipped the scale at more than 170 pounds, give or take a few. Jerry was a few inches taller than Jack and outweighed him by almost 100 pounds. And a lot of that extra poundage was muscle. Together they were a formidable challenge. Trying to maintain my cheerful appearance, although I was uncomfortable with the situation and maybe a little fearful of the two of them together in such a small space, I spoke up. Well, Jack, what brings you in today? Ask her, with the emphasis on the her. Well, Jerry, what's up? Something going on with you? Nah, Doc, it's him. Go on, tell him. She emphasized her direction to Jack with a solid poke in his ribs with her left elbow. Who you poking? Don't do that again, damn it. With that, he delivered a counter poke with his right elbow. Don't poke me, you skinny fucker. This delivered with a solid right hand fist to Jack's right shoulder. With that, Jack was on his feet in a flash, and with a howl, he delivered a solid right to Jerry's left cheekbone. The smack of a fist on flesh is a sound you only have to hear once. The resulting boom of the back of her head slamming into the wall behind her would have knocked out a lesser woman. But Jerry exploded out of the chair and with a left hand uppercut caught Jack right in the stomach. With a woof, Jack countered and they stood toe to toe, trading solid lefts and rights, waltzing around the room. Boom, 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 knocking things off the desk make it an incredible racket of profanity and body blows. I quickly opened the door and spoke to the wide-eyed Vicky who was out in the hallway. Call 911. <laughs> I closed the door and decided it was now or never. I was not foolish enough to step between them, so as loudly as I could I shouted, That's enough! You two knock it off and sit out. Surprisingly, they stopped immediately and looking a little sheepish, returned to their seats. Jerry's left eye was already puffy and she was going to have one heck of a black eye. Jack was huffing out his breath, slightly bent over from all the body blows that Jerry had landed. I realized that it spoke to a depth of her affection for him that she had not once hit him in his already seriously damaged skull. I took the time to pick up the collateral damage scattered around the office and rearranged the desk. I retrieved a small disposable ice pack from the freezer in the room and then handed it to Jerry for her eye. As my own breathing and blood pressure returned to normal, I tried again. Now Jack, 
What can I do for you? Jack was still trying to catch his breath, so talking was going to be difficult. With a wave of his hand, he indicated to Jerry that she should fill in on some of the current situation. Well, Jack was working on the ladder at home. He was fixing the tent sheeting on the eave of the roof, and the ladder flipped over. I told him that he needed to go to the emergency room at the hospital, but he won't go. He said he'd come here, and if you said he needed to go, well, then he would. I turned to Jack. Well, Jack, what's up? Until now, Jack had managed to keep his hat on. This was due in large part to the fact that he kept it jammed so tightly on his head and over his eyebrows in order to hide the missing portions of his skull that it was hard to get off without effort. He reached up and pulled the cap up and off. With the hat gone, most of the right side and top of his scalp slid forward and down over his eyes, hanging like a loose tarpaulin blown by the wind. He used his left hand to push it back up and replaced his hat, looking a question at me. I banged my head on the steel roof edge. Looks like it scalped me. If you work long enough in the healthcare field, you get used to seeing things that are truly unnerving. And this was one of them. At one time, Jack had had the right side of his skull removed as a result of previous trauma. Now, he managed to scalp himself over the same area. As in all cases where you're supposed to be an adult in the room, you have to act like you've seen it before, dealt with it before, and were unfazed by it all. I took a moment to relax my voice and then deadpanned as best I could. Yep, you need to go to the ER, Jack. Sooner the better or that skin's going to dry out and you won't be able to get it back together. Well, okay then, Doc. And with that, they both rose and without another word, they walked out of the room, down the hall, and out of the office. When not immersed in writing, Mike dedicates his time to volunteering and creating wood designer pieces that showcase his craftsmanship. And that's all for today. We hope you enjoyed this episode. If you have a story that you want us to catch, submit it on our website at www.relatable-media.com. Thank you for listening. And whether you are at home or on the road, we hope you catch this story. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.